All right, well, it's good to be here again, and it's good to see you guys again, and it's nice seeing you twice in one week. I was about to ask, was that even this week that we got together in the midweek, right? Right? Like, it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 19 today. Um, about nine more chapters to go in this book, uh, but... Today, the title of the message um, is Reasoning Daily, Reasoning Daily, and I think we'll, we'll see why in a little bit, uh, but we're going to cover the first 20 verses of this chapter today. But last time we saw that Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, there he gets a job uh, working as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla, um, where they did the same thing and they were uh, basically refugees from Rome. But Paul's custom, as we know, he kept going and sharing the synagogues every Sabbath and reasoning with the scriptures with them. Uh, at one point, uh, Silas and Timothy catch up with him, and that's when they begin to really step out and minister and go and uh, really go full force in the ministry in the region. Uh, but as usual, what happens? Opposition. Opposition comes, and uh, the religious folk and the, the other folk don't really appreciate uh, the truth of the gospel. Uh, and yet Paul stays for a few years. Paul continues on there for a few years. He doesn't run away right away. He continues on uh, despite the opposition and uh, strengthening the believers there. Uh, we, we meet a man named Apollos who knew about the baptism of John and believed in Jesus, but he didn't quite have the full revelation yet. And Aquila and Priscilla uh, give him the lowdown. He immediately uh, uh, grows in grace and continues on to minister to others uh, in the region. But uh, this morning, uh, let's once again go into prayer, and we'll start out with the first seven verses in chapter 19. And, and God, again, uh, we can't pray enough just to talk to you. The fact that we can, Lord, just at any moment talk or think to you and, and pray you and, and pray to you and seek you, and, and you're there, and you listen. And God, we thank you for that. So God, would you speak to us, we pray. How often we speak to you, but God, would you speak to us this morning and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and uh, a heart that's... Uh, Ready to and willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 19, verse 1 says, And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to them, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him um, who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And we'll stop there for right now. You know, we see that Apollos was at Corinth. And Paul had ended up actually moving out through Turkey, through the upper regions in this area, and he came down uh, to Ephesus. Uh, but essentially, we see that God is moving these people around, that God is orchestrating his own plans. Apollos is ministering. Apollos uh, goes across and ministers somewhere else. Paul's moving around and ministering, and he comes uh, back down to Ephesus. And, you know, it speaks to me in some way that we don't have to cover everywhere at once. Um, you know, where God has called us to go, we go and we focus where God has called us to go, whether it's one people, ten people, a million people, whether it's uh, the country or the city, whether it's uh, a cubicle or, uh, you know, I had a, a friend up in New York who's one of the elders and he 
drove a truck for many years and uh, he would minister while he was on the road and he ministered uh, at truck stops with a couple other guys where they would do a Sunday service at a truck stop. And sometimes it'd be one person, sometimes it'd be nobody, sometimes it'd be 10 truckers, but that's where God had him and that's where uh, he would minister. Um, and that's the thing, you know, God has called us, we need to minister there. God's taking care of the other people. I mean, if God lays someone on your heart to reach out to, obviously do it. But, you know, sometimes we see a need that's so great, we, we, uh, we stretch ourselves too thin and we just need to focus on what God has us uh, to do at any given moment. But we see here that Paul says that when he came to Ephesus, he, uh, in finding some disciples, he said to them, you know, that this word finding can mean on purpose or accident. You know, have you ever bumped into a Christian somewhere? Um, I remember buying a car in New York and talking and the radio station was on and I asked, you know, the lady, you know, this is a weird question, but are you a Christian? And she's like, I thought the same thing about you. And we got in this whole conversation and it was just an awesome opportunity there. Or maybe you've bumped into a friend from church or maybe the pastor from church. You're at the supermarket. You come around the aisle and you bump into them and, oh, wait, don't look what's in my cart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that happens so many times when you get to bump into people and you just have that opportunity. Maybe you haven't seen them in a while. They haven't been to church in a while. You can minister to them. Or maybe it's just a, a, you're having a down day and you bump into them and they cheer you up or whatever it is. It's, it's always good to see that. Um, I remember driving uh, all the time in New York where I had a, a longer commute than I do now. And uh, the region where we lived, a lot of people commuted south to Jersey and the city. And I'd see people from church all the time on the highway. I'd honk at them and wave. You know, at first they'd probably think I was just a crazy New York driver. And then they would realize, yes, it is. But I know this crazy New York driver. So it was always a blessing <laughs> seeing those people. Um, but knowing Paul, and again, I'm no language scholar here, obviously. But uh, he, I think he's finding them on purpose. That when Paul gets to this region, he seeks out the disciples. He pursues uh, with a purpose uh, to find believers to minister to and to minister with, uh, that he's looking for opportunities to minister here. And that's ministry, is that when God's gifted us and called us and our relationship with God is um, uh, in a place where we just sense God just overflowing us and, and, uh, and using us, that we begin to look for areas to minister. We begin to look for people to reach out for. Um, maybe you've, you've heard that saying that, you know, if you see the need... Go ahead and do it. I mean, so, many, so often people would come, um, or I've heard pastors say that people come up to them and say, hey, pastor, we should do this, or you should do this. I see this need. You should do this, you know, expecting someone else to take care of it. And yet, um, you know, sometimes when God reveals us to, to us the need, it's, it's up to us uh, to take care of it, obviously by his strength. But if he's showing you something like that, it's probably for a reason. You know, if, if I show my kids uh, how to do something, it's because I want them to do it. Or I show them a mess that they've made. I want to show them how to clean it up. Um, you know, there's even a saying in Calvary, you know, uh, even a joke really, welcome to Calvary, go stack some chairs. That You know, hey, you want to serve? You want to help out? We have to go stack up chairs. We have to vacuum. We have to go stack up chairs because we're, we're moving in and out of the building every day. Um, I remember first getting saved, you know, I didn't really know what to do. So I was just kind of around and say, Hey, what can I do? And said, Oh, can you wrap up that extension cord? Can you wrap up this cable? And then I was wrapping it wrong. So the sound guy showed me how to wrap cables, right. To not ruin them, but or moving stuff around. It was just, Hey, there's a need. I see there's people packing up. Um, you know, here's an opportunity to get plugged in. And I think that that's the best part about a traveling ministry, so to speak, or one that doesn't necessarily have a building is that there are those opportunities for new people to get plugged in. I think sometimes easier than when you are set um, in a building. Sometimes there's that perception that everything is, is taken care of. But really, I think we need to look for people in our everyday life to minister to, whether that's friends, family, coworkers, strangers that, you know, uh, pray and ask God to use you um, or to open your eyes to things. I mean, even last week, 
uh, I was sort of in that mode, like, Lord, hey, if there's someone I can minister to this week or, or whatever. And, um, you know, and there were opportunities to do so that came up. Um, uh, and hopefully I was obedient to them. But he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? You know, and I have to wonder if Paul's asking this, uh, did he ask them because of their conduct? You know, were, were their lives saved? but not sanctified? Were they immature as believers? Were they, did they confess the right things, but their lives kind of seemed a little off? You know, maybe that was the case or maybe not. Uh, you know, maybe that they were having a theological discussion at some point, uh, they get to the Holy Spirit or they get to the, the things of God and they don't even know about the Holy Spirit. And they're like, what, what are you talking about, Paul? And I think that's why he asked them that if this core doctrine, uh, and their conversation, their conduct really unearthed this, this issue that they didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And I think that that's interesting that they didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit because even David knew that there was a Holy Spirit. If we read the Old, Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 51, 10 through 12 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous Spirit that David knew that God's Spirit was the one that was going to uphold him, that God's Spirit was the one that was going to give him strength and get him through things. And you know, there's the Old Testament is littered of, of these examples and verses and, and um, happenings that really reveal that God is Trinity. I mean, even uh, the word for God in the beginning of Genesis is, is, uh, is plural one. But we see even at Jesus' baptism by John, uh, you know, that they knew about John's baptism, that when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came down as a dove, you know? And I think that it's interesting that maybe they just didn't know the scriptures. They knew, they knew enough to, to seek the Lord, but they didn't really know uh, all that was available to them as believers. Uh, but John's baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. And really, you know, John was Jesus' cousin. He's out there in the wilderness. He's, he's uh, you know, got locusts and honey and probably stuck in his beard. and He's baptizing people. And he's really saying that, hey, man, the, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is here. Um, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. You know, we need to repent that even me, a, a righteous man, John would say, in a sense, who's out here doing the work of God is not even worthy to untie this this Messiah's sandal because he's so great and so important and we're so in need of his forgiveness. Um, but that was his baptism, that God's kingdom was coming and that we needed to repent to prepare a way for it. You know, And that, I think that's the only way that God's kingdom is going to show up in our lives. Um, God's purpose in our lives is through repentance. You know, If we're living a life of sin and we're being unrepented about it, yeah, God can try and reach us and try and minister to us. But really, we're not going to experience the fullness of God until we've made a way of repentance. We're not going to have a way out of our sin, really, until we forsake our sin and, and, and uh, turn to God as a life. But I think that a lot of believers still today might answer the same way as these disciples. Maybe not theologically. Um, not that people say, oh, I, I know there's a Holy Spirit. I don't think you could ask probably the majority of Christians today about the Holy Spirit. You might even ask an unbeliever. They might even know about it probably in a bad way. Um, but I think practically in a lot of believers' lives, my own time, at, my own life at times, that uh, we find that, man, yeah, we theologically know, we intellectually know there's a Holy Spirit. But do our lives really show that there's a Holy Spirit? Do our lives really given over to uh, His direction and instruction and His, uh, his power and His leading? You know, you know, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, in our lives? Do we trust his leading and his empowerment every day for day-to-day living? Or is it just this, I come to church and the music was great and I worshiped and man, I felt the Holy Spirit. And then 
what happens later? Is that is that all the Holy Spirit is? Some some good feeling, some some power that you had maybe? I don't think so. And I don't think the Bible says otherwise. But do they do we listen to him and do they listen to him and find themselves and ourselves being used by him in amazing gifted ways? You know, yeah, maybe you believe in election of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, maybe you, you seek for him to, to strengthen you every day and to lead you in scriptures and you sense when God gives you a scripture or leads you to minister to someone, but when it comes to the actual outpouring of the spirit, maybe there's a lack. Maybe there's oh yeah, I don't maybe it's not for me, you know, that's for someone else. Maybe I'm not a good enough believer or or maybe there's this doubt and this struggle that goes in that way. Maybe you don't know what your spiritual gifts are. Um, maybe you don't know what it's like to be used by God. Um, and, and these things are okay. But I think that, um, you know, it's definitely something that as we grow and walk in believers that we're always going to be experiencing. Oh, wow, I, uh, that definitely was you, Lord. The older we get, the more we get. Oh, wow, God, you can use me more and more. It's not like you reach a plateau somewhere. But that, uh, you know, I, I see that that's a problem probably in, in, in the church at large today is that, man, we don't understand the power that the Holy Spirit uh, gives to us. And, and not for power's sake, like a superpower, but man, that we can have this relationship with God every day and really live a life that is a different and abundant, as Jesus might say. You know, we need to remember that uh, the Holy Spirit really kind of has uh, three positions with us if we want to make it into that sort of thing where there's words para and an epi, meaning alongside when you're an unbeliever and God comes alongside you to convict you and, and of your sin and of God's righteousness and of a way to salvation and freedom from it. And then there's N when he comes inside of you, when you accept the Lord Jesus and God comes inside you and lives inside you. And now there's conviction of sin and there's conviction of righteousness. And there's just, you know, you see things differently now because you have God's spirit in you. But then there's epi, and that's the sense when God pours out through you and begins to, to speak through you. And you go, I don't even know where that came from, or I don't even know why I even reached out to that person. And God began to minister to them and, and use you in that way because it's something only God could do. I mean, I think we all might experience that at least once in our lives. We realize, wow, that had to be God using me because that was totally outside of your comfort zone or something of that nature. As we'll see here even more, maybe you pray for someone and someone gets healed. Certainly it wasn't you or me who healed them. It was God who healed them and God used you. But we see here that, uh, you know, the Messiah had come. That These guys believed that he was, he was on the way or he had come, but they didn't really understand the, the fullness of the scripture. Um, but because Jesus had come, he's enabled us to have the spirit-filled life. You know, remember like we talked about David seeking the Holy Spirit, but David was afraid that God would take his Holy Spirit from him because in a sense, the Holy Spirit was was a, a rarity in someone's life in a, in a personal and intimate way that David had experienced. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit was at work, yes, but it was only in select people as we see through the, Holy, uh, through the Old Testament. We see like David or Samson or Elijah, you know, that God's Spirit was with these men, but it was a different time, a different reason. Um, you know, we saw that um, at the cross, when Jesus died and that veil was torn, we're now all able to experience there's a kind of glory of God that God's spirit is in a sense, like the Bible says, our guarantee of salvation. It's that seal on us. But Christian, the Christian life is to be lived not just by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, it's not just a, um, a superpower or, a, you know, a badge or anything like that. But, but that God himself, his spirit is dwelling within us. The Shekinah glory dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Uh, the high priest would go in there once a year and it was very dangerous. Um, you know, he had to deal with the sin of himself and the nation. Um, but again, the Holy Spirit is available because of the work of Jesus. You know, because the Messiah has come, 
we now all can have this personal, intimate relationship with God where we see in the Old Testament, Moses went up on the mountain, but the people said, no, we don't want to go anywhere near that glory of God. You know, remember that veil was torn, that we're able to access the Holy of Holies on a daily basis. You can be in the Holy of Holies in your car on the freeway. You can be the Holy of Holies while you're taking a shower. You can be the Holy of Holies while you're at the bank or at the supermarket. You know, you can sense that presence of God and be in the presence of God no matter where we are now. But verse 5 says, when they heard this, when they heard this, and uh, to take that as a fragment, you know, that true disciples truly listen and truly obey, that they wanted to go forward, that they knew the, the baptism of John, they knew the repentance needed for God's kingdom. But when they heard the, the more sure word of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was available to them, they wanted it all. They weren't content to stay where they were at. Uh, they were always wanting to go forward. And I think it's interesting that Ashton and I were watching this show about this business guy the other day. And even he said that if you're not always looking to grow your business or to improve your business in some way, um, you're going to fail. You're going to fall back at some point. It's not going to do as well. Um, that there's really no standing still in business. And I thought that was interesting that, that he knew that about business. And he's very successful in a business sense. But that's true of the Christian life as well. That we can't just sit around and say, okay, this is good enough. <laughs> Let me just stay here for a while and... Uh, uh, you know, five minutes a day is good enough with the Lord. An hour a day is good enough with the Lord. Once a week, that when we begin to do that, we begin to, to slack off and and uh, and to fall away. That we always need to seek God more and more because the more we do that, the more we realize, man, I <laughs> there's still not enough of God in my life. I still need Him more and more. Um, that if we're standing still, it's really an illusion. It's really uh, not a plateau. It's a downward slope. But we see that these guys here, they believe and they're baptized. Again, they're baptized again. I think that's great that these guys have the faith to go through baptism again. You know, that they, they didn't just say, oh, the old baptism was good enough. I got, I got wet. It was fine. You know, that um, we might say, well, wasn't my baptism as a kid retroactive? Uh, you know, maybe I was baptized as a child. And uh, now that I'm saved, doesn't that kind of count? And, you know, doesn't that work, Lord? I don't really have to get wet again, do I? And I would say not really. Not really. I remember being baptized around the age of 12. Uh, because my friend uh, was going to get baptized. I remember he was going, and yeah, I, I, in a sense, I knew what baptism was. I knew the Bible stories, but I didn't really have a relationship with God. And I guess, I don't know why, I guess I just wanted to because he was doing it and it sounded like fun. Um, maybe it was a little younger than that, maybe it was 11 or, or 10 or something. But um, I remember getting saved in uh, November of 2003, and there was a baptism in April of 2004, and I couldn't wait to get baptized. I wanted to get baptized again. I knew that old baptism for me meant nothing. I knew that just because I was at church and they maybe prayed for me or whatever happened, I knew that for me personally, it didn't mean anything, that I, I wanted uh, this opportunity to be obedient and to get baptized. I knew that it was the next step um, to take, and that's what the scriptures um, would outline. Because it, it was real now. It meant something now. And I wanted uh, to show that. I mean, you think about, you know, you, you hear about people who are married and then they recommit their vows to each other, um, maybe after a hard time or after a hard season, because... They want to they wanna make that commitment again. They say, hey, yeah, we made that commitment and we messed up, but we want to make sure that we're going on the right way. And I'm not saying we need to get baptized over and over again, but if, if you were baptized maybe as um, a child or maybe baptized even as a young adult and maybe that relationship with the Lord wasn't really there yet and you know you have one now, it's, it's okay to get baptized again. I'd, I'd say it would even be good. I, I mean, I remember my relationship with the Lord almost demanded it in a sense because I longed for it. I longed for that intimacy um, with the Lord. And again, it's, there's nothing special about the act, so to speak, but it's about our heart towards the Lord and that we are identifying with his death 
and his resurrection and his new life. Um, but what happens next here? What happens next? These guys get baptized, and what happens? The Holy Spirit, just like on the day of Pentecost, came upon them. These guys spoke in tongues, different languages, and they prophesied. They prophesied. They spoke uh, truth of Scripture and of God and of other matters in that sense. Um, you know, and this word here again is for other languages. To us, it might be Spanish or German or French Canadian or whatever the case may be, a different language. Uh, but for them, uh, it was probably other languages in the region, like we saw in the beginning of Acts, when all these people who were around them began to hear and understand. Maybe that there were dialects in this region that God had gifted them with. Um, and I think also, you know, maybe it was heavenly tongues. I, the word here doesn't really say that, but if we read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it's very straightforward about the gift of tongues, where even there is a heavenly language, and that, that heavenly language is important. But, you know, does this happen all the time after baptism? No, we don't see it happen all the time after baptism. And there's a big debate and a big schism in the church um, today. And there really shouldn't be that. People say, oh, you, you must speak in tongues when you're baptized. You must speak in tongues when you're saved and get baptized. Or, or there is no gift of tongues at all. Or there is, but, you know, I think we get these different opinions uh, based on experiences as opposed to based on what the scripture outlines for us. You know, that speaking in tongues is not a mandate. It's not a requirement, guys. It's a gift. The Bible is very clear that the, the gift of tongues is a gift. It's plain and simple. Yeah, do we need to desire it? Yeah, it's a good thing to desire. But can we take a class to work it up? Can you go take speaking in tongues 101 and learn how to speak tongues? Some people would say that that's the case. But, but I would say no. And I would say no because it's a gift. A G-I-F-T. Not a W-O-R-K. It's a gift of God. We can't work this up. We can't make it up. We can't get a degree in tongues. It's, if God wants you to have it, he'll give it to you. And if you ask, I wouldn't be surprised if he does. But it says he prophesied. You know, I think we should read those chapters or read them uh, for yourself as a reminder. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. But Paul says that he would rather prophesy five words than utter 10,000 tongues. I'm just going to read it. Uh, part of verse four, uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 9, 15, 18, and 19. It says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or prophesying by teaching? Saying, hey, if you can understand me, what's the point? You know, why would you come listen to me speak in tongues if, if you're not getting anything good out of it? He says, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will be known what is piped or played? You know, I can imagine listening to music that's not music. That's just random notes and blah, and you, you know, it's just a mess. Some people might call it music. I think that was big in the 60s and 70s for a while and maybe even today um, in certain genres. But really, if it's not music, you know, what it, you're just going to sit there and go, all right, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what this music is conveying. Where he says, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? You know, if the fire alarm goes off, but it's kind of like half beeping and 
it's not quite so loud, you're, you're, you're not really going to pay attention to it. But if it's loud and blaring and constant, you're going to go for it. So likewise you, unless you utter the tongue uh, by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. I mean, even think of certain denominations that would say that the Bible is not for the people, that it's got to be in Latin and only for the priesthood. And no way, God does not want that. But he says, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I'll also sing with understanding. And I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue that says, hey, tongues is great. You minister to God, you pray to God in your prayer language to God. That is awesome. That is good. But when it comes time to meeting together, when it comes time to ministering to other people, Paul says, I'd rather speak five words that you understood than 10,000 words to show off my ability in a heavenly language or my gift rather. But he says here at verse 7 now that the men were about 12 in all. So it's not a lot of guys here. It's 12 guys. And we think of Jesus had 12 disciples um, as well. But 12 guys can do a lot, especially by the Spirit. Um, even in the, the physical world, 12 can accomplish a lot. In football, there, what, there's 11 players on each team with the field at a time. In soccer, there's 10 players and a goalie. Hockey is five guys and a goalie. Basketball, five guys. An Army squad, 8 to 24. Navy SEALs have uh, eight-man squads or four-man fire teams. A, a, a few guys together with the same goal, the same mind, the same purpose could do a lot, even in the physical realm. Imagine 12 guys full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's leading, working together and loving each other and loving the world. A lot can happen there. You can definitely accomplish a lot there. So Paul is these guys. They know the, the scriptures now. They know the, the full revelation of the gospel. They've been baptized and uh, let's go on in verse 8. And it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And right away, we see that some, of the, some people in the area were hardened, and they didn't believe. If you remember Pharaoh, he kept hardening his heart, but eventually God sealed the deal on Pharaoh's heart that, you know, unbelief is very dangerous. And unbelief goes hand in hand with hardness of heart. You know, it's kind of this chicken and the egg or vicious cycle sort of deal where you're hard to the gospel because something happened and you unbelief. And then the unbelief leads to more hardness, leads to more unbelief. And the more and more you harden yourself, the more and more God is reaching out to you and you harden yourself to it, the harder it's going to be uh, to break that down. Um, and then it goes in a lot of things in life. You know, the longer you wait to wash the dishes, the more foul it gets. Um, uh, believe you me, I had some foul dishes in my day. Uh, but when we have personal issues in our life, whether that's unforgiveness or bitterness or unbelief be, uh, because something happened or didn't happen the way we wanted or expected or hoped or even prayed for, those things are very dangerous to hang on to. You know, I think of someone who maybe hates God because of something legitimate that happened to them. Maybe their parents claimed to be Christian, but they were really rotten. Or maybe they had an encounter with a, a quote-unquote Christian who was really, really mean to them. Yeah, in the end of the day, it's still their responsibility, but man, it's dangerous to, to be hardened to these things. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, it says, follow peace with all men in holiness 
without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble in you, and thereby many be defiled. That we need to be careful that bitterness doesn't take root, that hardness doesn't spring up in our lives when, when things don't go our way or, or we're disappointed or we're hurt even. I mean, the more you walk as a Christian, the more you find that, wow, the church will hurt you. Other people will hurt you from time to time because we're all sinners. Sometimes they mean to. Sometimes they don't mean to. Sometimes we take offense to things we shouldn't take offense to. And we begin to turn on people. We begin to get hard towards God. And, and we can't let that happen because it gets very deep. And it gets the deeper it gets, the harder it is to root out. I can remember uh, living with a few guys when I first got saved. And one of the guys got married. So before he got married, uh, we helped him like do his driveway and stain the deck. And also uh, do some weeding in his front yard. I remember doing some weeding in the summer. It was super hot out. He was like mowing the lawn. And these weeds just kept going and kept going and kept going. And they were like uh, wound into the roots with the grass. And it was just, um, it was deep. I was surprised at how deep they went. Uh, But that's the same thing with us that, man, it can go real deep to a point where it's bad. To where it's taken a hold of our entire life. But what is the result of this hardness and unbelief? You know, if someone's hard to God and someone doesn't believe in God or someone turns from them, even if they you know, have a relationship with God, um, what's the fruit of that? What's the fruit? Well, they speak evil of Christians before the multitude. They speak evil of God in the public square. They speak evil of certain people in front of the church. They speak evil of uh, good things and godly things in front of people who are impressionable, whether that's kids or whether that's adults, or whether that's on TV, or the internet, or the radio, or whether that's someone at church is really hurt by someone else at the church, legitimately or not, and they're a hard person, and they're a better person. They'll begin to spout it out in front of others at the church. And they're publicly speaking against Jesus in the church here. You think of atheism or liberalism today that totally just mocks and totally says everything against the church. And I think it's because they're hard, and it's because they're bitter, And I think it's because they haven't believed. I think if they had believed, they would begin to be softened. And the bitterness would begin to be healed. But because they refuse to believe, this bitterness and this hardness gets worse in their life. You know, the world has went from exalting Christians in a way. Not necessarily everyone wants to be a Christian, but at least being a Christian was somewhat respectable. um, To having some sort of respect to them. But to now outright even hating the church. uh, To mocking the church. You know, people are being fired just because they believe uh, in biblical things, or people are getting arrested, etc., just for not going the way of the world. But back to Paul here, and what happens? What does he do at this point when they're hard and unbelieving? Well, he departs from them, and he takes the disciples with them. You know, I think it's interesting, because before he, he had opposition, and he stuck around for a few years. Now he's got opposition. Now these people are so hardened that Paul departs and goes the other way, and he makes a clean break with them and the disciples here. And I think sometimes it's absolutely necessary to make a clean break when people are hardened and people are embittered and they just they won't hear it anymore. The Bible says not to cast your pearls before swine. That you know we can't always stick around and try and change people. It doesn't mean we give up right away, but at some point it's just okay. You don't want to hear it. You don't. You don't want anything to do with it. Well, you. I've done my duty and I've shared with you. But that's it. Luke 9, 1 through 5, Jesus uh, called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread nor money, neither have two coats of peace. Um, 
uh, and whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. She says, hey, you know, go into, go into a city and minister there. If they receive you, bless them. If they don't receive you, just leave and shake the dust off to them as a witness, as a testimony against them. That, hey, the good news came to you and you rejected it. And the good news says, okay, you can have it your way. You know, that the gospel doesn't need to be forced on people. If they, if they don't want it, at some point you say, okay, I gave you an opportunity um, to have it. And I think sometimes to leave says a lot. You know, it's a testimony against what they're doing and against their conscience. And it might even make them more mad sometimes. Have you ever been at work or in a situation with friends maybe, and the joking starts to get dirty or the conversation starts to go somewhere, you know you don't want to be involved in as a believer. So maybe you start out by not saying anything and not laughing, but then at some point you say, all right, I just need to get up and leave. You don't stand up and say, I can't believe you guys, you know, especially if they're unbelievers, you don't need to hold, hold them accountable in that way. But just get up and quietly leave and walk away and say, that's it. You know, sometimes they'll make fun of you. Sometimes they'll say, what are you doing? And you say, well, you guys are joking in a certain way and I don't want to be a part of it. Um, and I think sometimes that silence of leaving can speak louder than even the best argument. Because sometimes people love to argue and have them arguing and you arguing back to them, even if it's a good argument, not a heated, sinful one, but a good one where you're reasoning with them at some point just walking and leaving like the Bible says sometimes it's good to leave a fool in their folly and go the other direction you know Paul even tells Timothy to reject divisive people that man when people are divisive sometimes you just got to reject them at some point go to them a couple times but if it continues reject it and I think this also can point to the importance of leaving a church or ministry or fellowship quietly you know uh, I think it's good to talk to the pastor about it before you leave, to tell your friends that you're leaving, not just to disappear, but say, hey, we feel like God's calling us to go somewhere else. I think that's totally fine. But not to come back into the fellowship and to cause division. You know, there's right way and wrong way to leave. You know, you don't want to be the cause of division, even if you are right about the issue. You don't want to be that cause of division, you know, especially because God is going to judge in, in the end. You know, if you disagree with the way the ministry is going, just maybe have a sit down, talk with the pastor and say, this is our issue and if you can't hash it out and it's just time to leave just just leave uh you know don't come back to church and say hey guys this is our last sunday we don't agree with what the pastor's doing we're going to get out of here who's coming with us you know don't be divisive you know sometimes that that absence someone will call you up and say hey what happened and you can explain to them say hey you know we had this issue or that and again you know depending on what it is it might be better to say hey we had this personal issue we couldn't work it out. You know, if you have questions, you can talk to the pastor, but you know, none of this thing to, to cause a division or to spread gossip or rumors, but enough of that, you know, um, his verses, Matthew eighteen seven and Romans sixteen seven through 18, that would talk about things like this to not be divisive that, uh, you know, people who are only serving their own interests. But we see here that just because they turned and left and departed and separated themselves from the people who uh, were hardened against them, that the ministry wasn't over. They just moved it elsewhere. I said, okay, you guys don't want to hear it. You, we went to the mall and no one wanted to listen. So we went to the restaurant and, you know, you just keep moving and keep going. And here it says that they went to the school of Tyrannus. And this guy was a Gentile teacher um, and he had a school. And I think it's interesting that this word school actually means freedom from labor or a place where there is leisure for anything, a school. And I said, uh, I don't ever remember being school being that leisureful, but definitely school is probably... Maybe it was more fun than working. I don't know. But at least you get paid to work. But uh, no wonder kids don't learn anything at school these days. If it's just a place for leisure. 
I don't know. I thought that was funny. But the commentary says, uh, one ancient, though not inspired, uh, his writings say that Paul held his meetings at the school of Tyrannus from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon, or the hottest part of the day. This would have been the, the time most people were resting from work. Uh, think of a siesta. Uh, including Paul, who worked to support himself while in Ephesus. These may have also been the off hours for the school of Tyrannus. That, uh, you know, there's a school, this place where people come to learn or come to meet. Um, uh, they come in the morning, they go home to rest when it's hot, and then they come back in the afternoon uh, to finish the school. And I remember going on, uh, I probably shared before, we went on a mission trip to the Bahamas, and we tried to do an outreach in the middle of the day and hand out flyers in the middle of the day, and there's no one outside. Everyone's gone, and, and uh, some of the locals said, hey, no one does anything this time of day. <laughs> <laughs> between basically 11 and 4 no one's outside you come back and do it later because it's so brutally hot and we're out there like burning and just being uh, clueless but uh in new york we met in a school for many years you know school meets monday through friday but on sundays they're not doing anything so we rented a school and they provided a, a custodian to help us out and a lot of calvary uh fellowships do that you know to find a place that's maybe not used during the week to meet on the weekend um, you know, that can definitely be interesting. But Paul does this, and he does it for two years. For two years. That's quite some time. You know, he was in two years in a place, and he stuck around, and then he moved on and, and was at the school of Tyrannus for two years. And it says that, that all the Jews and Gentiles who dwelt in this area of uh, Turkey, they call it Asia, heard the word of the Lord Jesus. And, you know, everyone was given an opportunity. That's quite an accomplishment for two years, that everyone in this massive region hears about the gospel. That's... Uh, that's pretty serious. I don't know what I've done in two years, but certainly not everyone in, uh, in the places I've been have heard about the gospel, especially not that big. But uh, I digress. Let's go on. Uh, verse 11 and through 17 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And we'll stop there for now. You know, it says that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul right here. And we have to notice that, well, who worked these miracles? It was God. And what kind of miracles were they? Well, they were unusual. And through what instrument did God use them? Uh, it was Paul's hands. It was Paul's hand. This word unusual could be special. You know, it's not the regular kind. You know, it's not that miracles in general are regular. We wouldn't call it a miracle if it was an everyday happening. Uh, but miracles are when God works, and there's really no other explanation. Or sometimes we even try to explain it away, but we know that uh, God is the one who did it. Well, so what? Well, I think that that means that we aren't to look for these miracles today. We aren't to look for magic handkerchiefs or magic aprons that touch a certain pastor and will be healed by it. We're not to expect God to work these ways. Um, you know, he's, he has plenty other means to work these days. The Holy Spirit, the gifts, prayer, the Bible, uh, ministry. He has other means. You know, not that God wouldn't use these things or couldn't use these things, but I think because they're unusual, we're not really to expect them or look for these types of miracles. 
And I think why? Well, because usually people look to strange miracles and they look to the miracle themselves and they give glory to the wrong thing. They don't give glory to God. They give glory to uh, the piece of toast that came out of the toaster that looked like the Virgin Mary. Or they go and flock to a bleeding statue, which is definitely not the Lord. Or they worship weird magicians who do tricks. Or even, you know, about strange ministries. Um, you know, guys like Benny Hinn and knocking people over and waving stuff around and shouting and screaming and they give glory to the wrong thing. And maybe God used it. And I'm not saying that some people weren't healed through these things. Um, but I don't know that it was always God. And I don't know um, that God is... God maybe had just been honoring the faith of the sick and not the work of uh, the itinerant preacher. You know, Matthew 9, uh, 20 through 22 uh, says, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. And I think this is the key there. It says, For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and we saw her and said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And Acts 5, 14 through 16 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were uh, tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I think this shows that God wants to heal people. That sometimes <laughs> there's such a need that God's going to use the shadow of Peter, because Peter doesn't have time to sit and pray with everyone. That God will use just a quick passing of Peter by to heal them. Um, and again, nothing special in Peter. It's just that these people have faith, and they're reaching out, and the lines are so long, God wants to reach them all. You know, God wants to heal people. God wants to heal people physically and spiritually you know this world is broken in so many ways and, and god sees how it hurts us and how we get hurt by even ourselves in this world um but i think the most part is that god wants wants to give them a chance and as soon as they do give god a chance god's going to use it and god's going to set all of heaven loose to do so even if that means an apron or a handkerchief by paul's hands but we see here that there are itinerant Jewish exorcists. And these guys were wandering, wandering exorcists. I mean, that's kind of a job title, right? <laughs> Going to town, hey, I'm the, I'm the wandering exorcist. Um, you know, they practiced their trade with a lot of superstition and ceremonies, what people were looking for. That's it's a strange time, but I would say that this world is probably just about just as strange even now, if not worse. You know, if you read the news, you see that exorcism is getting a lot of headlines in the news these days because people are aware of the darkness. And that these guys, these itinerant Jewish guys, saw that there was real power that the disciples had. And it was really the Holy Spirit working through the disciples. But these guys said, hey, these guys are doing it. We've got to add this to our act. We've got to add this to our show. And it's interesting that in verse 13 that they say, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know, that there's no personal relationship here. These, these exorcists see the power of God working, but they don't make it personal. They don't realize that, that God would have them. They just say, oh, it's just... Another thing like we do, they, they try and, and try and use it. You know, think of like a, uh, a, a knockoff product you might get on a city street or out of the back of a van or out of a guy's coat. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not the real Holy Spirit here. These guys aren't, uh, don't have the real power, you know, because there's only one real power, one real God, and that's Holy, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if he's not doing it, it it's not going to work. But maybe some spirits have been exercising these guys today. You know, I don't doubt that, you know, some spirits are exercised through the Catholic Church or other things like that. But, uh, you know, at least this one time, this evil spirit was not going to have it. You know, again, because there's only one real power that these spirits, that these fallen angels and demons are going to listen to, and that's Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. 
not the name of Paul, but it's if they come out of somebody, it's because Jesus told them to come out of them. It's not because you and I had any power over them. You know, look at all the encounters that Jesus had with evil spirits and how they immediately knew who he was and they immediately listened to him and they said, oh, you know, don't torment us yet. The time hasn't come yet because we know who you are and we know what's going to happen to us. But this uh, evil spirit says to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? I mean, you can almost picture like that Brooklyn mobster accent coming out of the guy, but who are you? You know, who are you, tough guy? Almost mocking. You know, like this guy says, like, I know the God of heaven. I know God's servant, Paul, you know, he's been making waves in our demonic community. Um, but you guys, give me a break. You guys have no power here. You know, think of like the seven sons of Sceva as a bunch of mall cops trying to bring down an international crime boss, trying to go date down some uh, Colombian drug lord or some Mexican cartel with, uh, you know, their hall passes and their, uh, you know, uh, what are those things? The segues they ride on. The guy's going to laugh at them. They're going to be destroyed because they have no power over him. They can't even fight him. Even if they wanted to fight him, they don't have the, the, the firepower to take him down. And that's the same thing here. These guys did not have the power or the authority. Even though there were seven of them, this one guy had more power over them uh, than they had because they did not have God on their side. You know, you hear about stories about people hopped up on drugs like PCP or this new drug, Flacca, that they just go nuts. And they like rip their clothes off and they're like officers all over the place trying to take them down and macing them and it doesn't do anything, shooting them a bunch of times and it barely doesn't do anything. And we see here that uh, this guy does basically that to them. He wounds them and that word uh, is traumatizo. You think that these guys were totally wrecked, totally traumatized by this accident, totally disgraced through and through mentally, physically, spiritually. They had their clothes ripped off. They were beaten up seven of them by one guy, by one guy. Um, and that shows that there is power in the spiritual realm and we need to be careful with it uh, because there's only one who has power over them. You know, and, and this goes to show that we can't fight the enemy on our own. That we're not to be the ones to be confronting the enemy in our own strength, but we just need to let Jesus do it. We need to let the Heavenly Father do it. Yeah, if there's an opportunity, you're out ministering and you feel God leading you to do an exorcism, go for it. But in day-to-day life, we don't need to be like, stay behind me, Satan. Just... Thy God, I love you, quote verses, worship. We don't need to have any dealings uh, with them. God will do that for us. You know, First John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, that God's in us, and we, in a sense, don't need to fear this realm, because God is in us. Um, you know, everyone ends up hearing about this. It becomes big-time news. And, you know, these ghost hunters are the guys who get hunted themselves. And uh, it makes waves in the community. And what happens? People end up fearing God. Fearing God. And the word of God uh, is magnified through this. If we remember Acts 2 and Acts 5 at Pentecost, and when Ananias and Sapphira died for lying to God, fear swept the people. Maybe they didn't come to God, but they respected God and they revered the things of God because they realized that the godly things had real power. But again, the ultimate outcome was that God's word was magnified and not, and not always, uh, is everyone going to get saved, but man, when God begins to do something, even through a bunch of itinerant priests who try and say the name of Jesus and because they're not, uh, in a relationship with him, God ends up using it. You know, uh, God's going to do that. And I think that, you know, when people, uh, may not come to faith when they hear from us, they may not come to faith as we minister to them, but when they see God work in our lives, they're going to fear it. You know, whether they mock it because they fear it or whether they have this respect because they fear it, uh, they might, uh, they're going to realize that there is a higher authority um, in our lives. But let's go on and close out in these last uh, few verses here. Verse 18 says, And many who had believed came, 
confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and if it and it told of fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Again, we see more awesome spiritual results going on here. Again, this is you know a two-year period. These are the the, the highlights for it that we're getting here. Um, but we see that these magicians and these sorcerers they turn to God. I think that's awesome that. The spiritual authority that's been happening. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. And uh, and now these people who are totally wrapped up in uh, in spiritual things, in magic and sorcery, their lives are being changed by God. The power that was over their lives, the power that they gave their lives to, now has no more power in them. And that it says that even, in a sense, believers came and confessed their deeds. That they these people now saw that, wow, I can't play around with the spiritual realm. I can't play around with sorcery. I can't play around with witchcraft. And I need to repent of it because it's not innocent. It's not a, a thing that I can dabble in that's okay as a believer. You know, I think that there's a direct link between these things and demons, like ghost hunting. You know, someone even this week at work said, hey, do you guys, just out of nowhere, do you guys believe in ghosts? And we got in this conversation and it was very good. Or UFOs, you know, there's this outcropping of all UFO sightings and videos and all these things that are interesting to to look at in a sense. But I know that it's demons. I know there's no aliens out there. I know that these are lying signs and wonders. Uh, But it's all related to the spiritual realm. You know, sorcery, wizards, and magic. Not necessarily, you know, the card tricks. But you see these weird magicians that are out there these days that people flock to and like. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of it had a spiritual side to it. I'm not saying it all does, but sincerely i think some of it does uh, or horoscopes or fortune telling you know christians who talk about reading a horoscope well, <laughs> what are you doing uh, or spiritual practices not defined in the bible you think about these things going through church like praying in circles that you must pray circles about things today and how it comes from native american mysticism and spiritualism like well what are you doing with it the bible doesn't say you need to pray a circle or anything yeah joshua walked around uh jericho seven times and seven days and that's not praying circle i'm more for going out and you know you want to go minister an area walk through streets and pray but there's just weird stuff that people say well you have to do it this way and it catches up even people you would think are very famous in the faith or certain music or certain games or certain practices they have a a direct spiritual link that as believers we should just not touch we should not touch and in fact we should do the very opposite of if we have in our life you know i think it's a wonderful thing to see and hear the people of god who were given over to such immense and intense evil to now say, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with it. I want to be radically saved and follow God the next day. And I think that, you know, whatever we think is controlling you or controlling me, that's taking over your life, preventing you from coming to Jesus, know that God is far more powerful than those things. Even if you're caught up in it, even if you think you can't get out of it, God's more powerful than it. God's way more powerful than it. You know, I'm, I've heard testimonies and stories of people who were caught up in crazy amounts of witchcraft and God freed them from it. And they knew that it was God freeing it from them. But you see here that these books and stuff were expensive. 50,000 pieces of silver. You know, uh, uh, roughly today, that would be about two over $2 million. If you make $50,000 a year, uh, the silver was like a quarter day's wage. So if you, you work it out, if, the, if you make $50,000 a year, that'd be worth $2 million, if that's the average salary. So it's probably even more than that, uh, depending on where you live. But that's a lot of books. $2 million worth of books for I fill that entire parking lot. I mean, I don't know how many you know, books are in the, in the library, but that's a big burning pile of sorcery, magic, drugs, practices, games, etc. It's huge. 
it's huge. And I think it's important, you know, that, that we have to burn the things in our lives that in themselves contain the burning flames of hell, that no matter how much these things cost us, no matter how much our lives are wrapped up and connected to them, no matter how expensive they are or how much work it'll take to get it all out of our house and out of our lives, we need to burn them. It's not just, oh, that's not good for me. It's cookies. I'll just eat the last few. And, you know, I just won't buy cookies the next time I go to the store. But if it's evil and it's wicked or it's something that's leading you down these paths, you need to get rid of it. You need to burn it. I remember first getting saved and, and having all this music and movies. And not all of it was bad. I mean, there's some of the movies that I own then I'd, I'd watch today. But I remember just didn't, didn't know what to do with them. I, I knew that I had to do something with them. I thought maybe I'd give them to my friends. But I remember the pastor saying that when he got saved, he threw everything out. And I knew that was my answer. So I took all of my CDs, all my movies, and I went to the dumpster and went, dumped them all in there. It was a lot of money. There was a lot of money in there. But you know what? I needed to do it. I needed to do it for my relationship with the Lord because I didn't, I couldn't go back and listen to that same old stuff, that vulgar stuff. I couldn't go back and watch those vulgar things. Um, it had to be done. It had to be done. Um, I think sometimes we, we rationalize because of the cost of stuff. But again, I know we're going a little bit long, but we're going to wrap up right here. You know, um, like Jesus said to Mark, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better to go into heaven without a hand than to go into hell with, with everything you got. Um, but what's the fruit of all this? What's the end fruit? That the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. That as people uh, were given over to God, as people sought God, as people repented and burned their, uh, their wicked uh, practices and books, that God's word began to grow and that people's lives were changed. That God's word prevailed in their lives. That people weren't held down by these sinful things anymore. That they were free from the spiritual captivity. And if we want to be free of whatever has us captured, we don't need to spell. Like, I, you know, I prayed before about a 12-step program. We don't, need to, we don't need that. We just need to ask God for the strength to burn it. For the strength to separate ourselves from those relationships or from those situations that just aren't good or just aren't holy or just have become so hard and turned off to the gospel. We have no business being there anymore. We need to just get rid of it. But what happened here that Paul continued daily, he reasoned daily with the people, and it was all with the word of God. And that's what all this was based on. They didn't know about the baptism. Paul explained to them through the word of God what baptism was. They, they were caught up in spiritual things, and the word of God is what revealed to them that these spiritual things were wicked and that there was a, a power in the name of Jesus. And, and that's what, what God has to do for our lives. Every day we need to seek the power of God in our lives by his word. We need to seek him in his word. We need to seek the Holy Spirit to, to minister to us in the word personally. And from there for everyone around us, our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers and community. Because if we're not seeking God for his power in our daily life, when we get out there, we're not going to have... Um, God can still use us, don't get me wrong. But if, if we're spending that time with the Lord, God is... a uh, um, God is blessed by it, and other people will be blessed by the overflow uh, from our lives. So, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, God, you are more powerful than anything in this world. And no matter what the enemy throws at us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what we've been caught up in in the past, God, that you can free us from it all, and you freed us from so much, God. Would you continue to do that? And would you minister to those around us and free those around us who are caught up in, in witchcraft or in drugs or in... Uh, pornography or in whatever it is, God, that they're caught in, free them from it and really just their sin, God, free them from that, that they might find a relationship with you. And God, would you use us uh, to, to soften people with your word? And uh, we love you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.